Good morning, fellowship. And I just want to say to Carl and Luke and the whole team, y'all are leading us so well this morning. Really grateful for that. Uh, I also want to say I was walking in this morning and, you know, I came in from this entrance and I caught the sun, right, as it was reflecting off the pond and was looking out over that lawn and just enjoying a perfect fall morning. That's what God has given us, a perfect fall morning. And so I want to encourage you to worship, not just inside today, but outside. God has given us a space, this space that we're in, obviously, we gather in here to worship together, to hear God speak to us from his word. And he's given us this beautiful place, this campus. So before you get in your car this morning, I know your path is going to take you outside somehow. And just pause for a minute. Look around. Enjoy this weather. Worship Christ. Let's let the worship spill out over into our campus before we go home this morning. And that also brought to my mind the significance of this season that we're in. And, you know, this is the last time that I'm going to have an opportunity to talk to you all as a campus, to our Brentwood campus, about our follow campaign. Next week, I'll be at the Franklin campus teaching this message. Lloyd will be here. And next week, we're going to be revealing where we are and sharing with you, hey, here's what's been committed to our campaign so far. And I'm really excited about that. But here's what I want to say. Many of you have jumped in on this. And I want to say thank you. It, it's really been exciting to us as we've sort of seen, man, the gifts that have been given. People are giving very, very generously. And I know you're giving because you believe in the mission that God has given us. And even the campus that he's put us in here, this beautiful place, we want to steward it. We want to maximize it. We want to have a place where we can connect, where we can enjoy the outside of our campus as well as inside. So it, it all connects together. And, and I know many of you are, are giving because God has placed that mission and vision on your heart. Many others have not yet given. And, and I know there's probably a lot of things in your mind right now. And one of them might be, man, this economy is not super good. Or I think even if we don't give as a family, the church will probably still have all that it needs to move forward. Here's our truth. You know, here's our reality is we need everybody. We need everybody to be a part of this. So I think so far we've had 400 households that have given and given very, very generously. This is the last week. Like, this is it. And then you're not going to hear us again. We're trusting God's going to put in our hands whatever he puts in our hands. And whatever we have in our hands, we're going to move forward with it. And we'll see what that ends up being. We've, we've made a commitment. We're not going to take on any debt. We're not going to take on any debt. We'll move forward with what God has allowed us to move forward with. So it's very exciting what's been given, and there's a lot more opportunity. So I just want to encourage you, if you haven't made that commitment yet, Now's the time. This is the week. Two ways you can do that. One is through a commitment card, physical card that we have out there in the lobby. You can fill that out, place it in one of those boxes, or go to this website, which is easy to find on our primary website as well, and you can make an online commitment. Again, you're not giving anything today necessarily. You certainly can choose to do that. It's a commitment of your intention over the next three years, and all of us coming together uh, will be what God's going to use and, and move us forward with that. So we're excited about Sharing that with you next week. It's not going to be an unusual Sunday. It'll be a normal Sunday, but as part of our service, we're going to give you that update and share that with you. So let's all come together in that. All right. Open your Bibles now to John chapter 16. One of my very favorite movies is the 1998 Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show. I know many of you know it. Some of you may not know it. But even if you don't know the movie, you haven't watched the movie, my guess is you may have heard of the plot a little bit or you kind of know a little bit of an idea. It's the story of a man who's literally born inside a television show. And, you know, his, his last name's Truman or 
His first name's Truman, and it, the show's called The Truman Show. He's born inside the show. He has no idea as he's growing up that everyone around him is an actor. You know, he's the only real part of this story. His mom's an actor. His dad's an actor. He grows up and gets married. His wife's an actor. His best friend's an actor. Everybody's in on it except for Truman. There's one person, however, on the show, she's, she's kind of an extra in the show, that at high school, she, she, she meets Truman. She comes up to him. She sort of arranges a, a, a time where she can have a private conversation with him, and she tries to tell him that it's all a show. It's not real. Of course, you know, he's having trouble processing what she's saying, and then, of course, the producers of the show realize what she's doing, and they whisk her away. You know, they take her away, and Truman never sees her again, but he can't forget her. He can't forget her because just one brief encounter with someone who spoke truth to him was enough to slowly open his eyes. And so at the end of the movie, Truman bravely confronts the reality that his life up to that point had all been a deception. It, it, it had all been, been a delusion. And he has to make a choice. And you know, without totally giving you the whole movie, I'll just say this. The choice is either stay in the delusion where things are comfortable even though they're not real or risk stepping out into the real world that he knows nothing about. In the book of John, one of the core ideas is that God came in the person of Jesus as truth into a world that's been deceived. So literally from the very first verses in chapter one of John, John describes Jesus as a great light coming into a place of darkness. Now darkness, of course, is a metaphorical way of talking about a world governed by lies, a world governed by deception, a, a world that can't see. It can't see the truth. So the light comes into the world. And so the light and darkness metaphor you see all throughout John's gospel. He keeps coming back to it. In chapter eight, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. He removes any doubt about who he is. That I am the light of the world. Then he goes on and says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Another place in John's gospel says, you'll know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. Well, the truth will set you free from what? From the deception, from the delusion, from the lie you've been living in. Later in, uh, again, in chapter eight, Jesus describes sort of the, the, the puppet master behind the great deception that the world is living in. He, he starts talking about Satan, the prince of the world. And how does he describe him? The father of lies. He's the great deceiver. He's the father of lies. Fast forward to chapter 16, where our text is this morning. Jesus is in this final conversation with his disciples over the, the Last Supper, and he knows he's about to be arrested. And he's just told them in chapter 15, he said, listen, the world has hated me. The world's been against me, and so it's going to be against you as well. And why is it going to be against you? Because the world is living in darkness, and darkness hates the light. And so the world is so deceived that even when its own creator comes to set it free, it's like an animal in a snare that, that, that's trapped and just lashes out against the one who would set it free. And Jesus says, this is how they've treated me. They're going to treat you the same way because you're going to be on my mission of freeing the world that is living in delusion, that is living in darkness. In verse two of chapter 16, part of the text that Lloyd covered last week Jesus tells the disciples, the darkness and deception is so complete that there will come a time when people will kill the disciples of Jesus thinking they're doing a service to God. 
How dark is that? How deceived is that? How upside down is that? So we pick up, and I want to start this morning in verse 7, which is the last verse of Lloyd's message, and that will take us into our text today, beginning in verse 8. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Lloyd did a great job of teasing this out last week. It's one of the most interesting verses in John's gospel because Jesus is saying, you're better off if I go. And why is that? Well, because the presence of Christ in them will be greater and better than the presence of Christ with them. This is the promise of the Spirit, and that sets up our text. Here's what Jesus is about to tell them in our text this morning. He's about to say, let me tell you one more thing about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's mission is directly related to the deception that the world is living in. The Spirit's mission is to continue to press against darkness as light against darkness, as truth against lies. That's what the Spirit is ultimately here to do. Check, check it out. We'll look at verses 8 through 11, and we'll spend most of our time this morning on these few verses, and then we'll go a little further at the end of the message. And when he comes, of course, talking about the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, very interesting, kind of enigmatic, a little bit difficult to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And, and you know, when, I'll be honest, when I first read this text, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. It's not necessarily one of these texts that's going to change anyone's life. You know, I can hardly understand it. And then that's how it goes with God's word. You start digging in and you go a little deeper and you learn more and you study more. All of a sudden I'm like, I can't wait to teach this message. This is for us in our day. You know, this is the living word of God for us today. We need it. So here's what's going on in the, the little short four verses. Jesus is describing the purpose and mission of the spirit in the world. Up to this point, he'd only been talking about the purpose of the spirit in the believers. He's gonna be your comforter. He's gonna be your counselor. He's gonna be your helper. He's gonna remind you. And, and now he's saying, this is the purpose of the spirit out there in the world. And as far as I can tell, this is the only place in the Bible that talks about the, the spirit in his relationship to the world, the Spirit's interaction and relationship to the world. So here's what the Spirit's mission and purpose is in the world. It, it's right here in our text, very clear. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now there's a whole lot to this, and so we've got some, some explaining to do. We've got, we've got to unpack this uh, a little bit. The place where we have to start is, is with the verb. Okay, the, the action. What will the Spirit do? He will convict. Now, I don't love that word in English, and it does not do the Greek word justice, as you know, is often the case. You know, any translation, you're coming from one language where, where a word has a lot of nuances, you know, and a lot of things, and then you're having to force it into another language that has a different set of nuances for different words, and so you lose some things sometimes. By the way, that's a, here's a, it's a little tip. Read the Bible, if you're studying a text, in multiple translations. Because what you'll see is multiple scholars coming from the original text, their efforts to kind of give nuances of the different words. So when you study other translations of this verse, you, you see the word convict. You sometimes see the word convince. He will convince the world. 
And you sometimes see the word expose. He will expose the word. You, now put these three things together. He's going to convict. He's going to convince. He's going to expose. What's going on? In the Greek, the word means to prove something incorrect or wrong by explaining the truth. To prove something incorrect or wrong by explaining the truth. This is why I don't love the English word convict here because when you and I hear convict, we kind of just mean, it means make someone feel guilty. It's like, I'm gonna convict you that you're wrong. You know, it's, just, it's sort of like an attacking negative word. In, in the Greek, it's this idea of, of I'm gonna show you where you're off course so you can get back on course. I'm, I'm gonna demonstrate to you that your way of thinking or your behavior, or your attitude around something is missing it. It's missing the mark. So if someone's heading in the wrong direction, they're heading the wrong way, you know, someone else might step in and, and hold up a big sign and say, danger, you're heading the wrong way. Let, let, let me show you where this is going. Let, let me keep you from going down this path. And that's what this word convict means here. Remember the context. The world is in a deception. The world's like Truman, you know, trapped inside this, this great deception by the father of lies. And, and, and the core deception is essentially you can't trust God. You know, God doesn't like you. God doesn't want you. God's angry at you. You know, all these things that lies of Satan that start all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. The world's caught in this web of lies. And Jesus is saying that the mission of my spirit is to engage those lies with truth. In other words, convict the world to show the world it's headed in the wrong direction, to stand in the world's path and say, wake up, turn around. Let me expose the lie that's caught you in its web and it's leading you toward death. So that's the mission of the Spirit. Now, point two, we won't spend a lot of time here, but it's really important. How does the Spirit do this? Another way of asking it is, how does the Spirit interact with the world? Well, primarily through the followers of Jesus. Because in us, the Spirit dwells. Where is the Spirit of Christ today? Well, particularly in the followers of Jesus. So what's being described in our text this morning in these few verses is the mission of the Spirit in and through the followers of Jesus, people like you and me, like our church and, and all the other churches that the, the true, you know, church of, of, of Jesus Christ throughout 2,000 years of history. So the passage sort of frames our mission. You know, we have a mission here at Fellowship to become a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and help others do the same. This text frames our mission as a church saying your mission, church, is a continuation of the great rescue mission of Jesus Christ and it's being continued not ultimately by us, ultimately by the Spirit of Christ in us. The Spirit of Christ is coming to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, to rescue the world, to set it free from its deception, you see. So, it gets really interesting for us when we drill down in the three words that the Spirit is going to convict the world of. Number one, sin. Two, righteousness. Three, judgment. 
Keep in mind, Jesus could have mentioned any number of things that the Spirit wanted to peel back the deception and show the truth. Any number of things the world is deceived by. There's lots and lots of things that the world is, is wrong about or is living in darkness, but he chooses these three. Sin, righteousness, judgment. As I've thought about this, I, I've, I thought to myself, I, I think the implication of this is that these three things are the roots of the whole deception. In other words, I think the Spirit would, would lead to expose the truth about sin, righteousness, and judgment in order that the eyes of the people would be opened and they would look around and they would say, ah, oh, wow. Now I see reality, you see. And, and, and the rest of the delusion kind of would fall like a house of cards. Here's what's interesting. How easy is it in our contemporary context to talk about these three things? Hmm. What does that tell you? In part, I think it tells us that the prince of the world knows these three things are critical to keeping the world in darkness, to, to keeping the deception going. And, and so the, the world, in a sense, is sort of well defended against these things. And, and over the history of the church, I'd say the deceiver has gotten very clever at, at using words that are meant to bring life to people and twisting them in a way that sound to our ears in our contemporary culture that they're words of death, that they're angry, evil words. This is very interesting to me. And so what I think Jesus is saying, and I let this sink in for a minute, I think Jesus is saying is these are the three areas the spirit of truth is going to focus in on in the world because this is where truth and deception will collide. And another way to think about it, using a different metaphor, these three things are the front lines of the battle of light and darkness. So we who bear the spirit of truth in us must drill down on these three things. We, we must understand these three things. We, we, we must let the spirit speak to us about these three things so it can speak through us to the world. So let's drill down on them one by one. This is how we'll spend, you know, most of the message this morning is just on three words. These three words, because they're, they're that important. We've got to start with sin. Hello. Hard in our time, in our day, to talk about sin in the world, is it not? Uh, by the way, I think we need to talk about it more, not less. I think that's where the Spirit would lead us. But how we talk about sin is very, very important. That's always been true, but, but particularly in, in a culture now that's so well defended against the concept of sin, you know, again, living in darkness and this, I, I think it, it really matters how we talk about sin. And I'd say it this way, we need to learn to talk about sin in our culture in a way that can go underneath their defenses to, to reveal God's truth, the beauty of God's truth underneath the preconceptions that people have about God and about sin and about these things. Let's, let's, let's talk about this more, okay? This is really worth digging into, right? We could do a whole series on this, and, and perhaps we will down the road. But why is it hard to talk about sin in our time and place? 
because the world is deceived, the world is well guarded against it, all that's true. What, what deception, though, has the world bought into? What does the world think about sin? Well, primarily, it, it just thinks sin doesn't really exist, that, that sin is just this construct that, that's been, you know, created by religious people or religious systems and, and created in order to judge people so that the religious people can control those people. And, you know, the world would look at the history of the church and say, look, you, you see how you, you, you sort of used sin against people and you're judging and manipulating, you overpowered them with this concept of sin. And, 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 and obviously there's a lot of things in the history of the church that would give evidence that we, the body of Christ, have used the concept of sin as a weapon against other people. And so we get to our day and age, we're like, aye, 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 we don't want to do that. So let's just not talk about sin. We mustn't do that. The Spirit of Christ would lead us to talk about sin more, not less. But, but let's talk about it in a way that can kind of take God's word as the light underneath the darkness and kind of expose the lie. So where do we start with this? I actually think the words of Jesus right here in our text about sin are an, an incredible starting place for us in our time and place. What does Jesus say about sin? And by the way, he gives this little explanatory comment about each of these three words concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That's all Jesus has to say about sin in this particular context. Because they do not believe in me. Hmm. What Jesus seems to be saying here is that the root issue of sin is unbelief. Specifically unbelief in him. What Jesus seems to be saying here, that the, the, the core issue of sin, the, the root of sin is not the things that we think of when we hear sin, you know, greed, pride, lust, envy, hatred. That, that's sort of the, the, the fruit of sin, the, the working out of sin visibly in the world. What Jesus seems to be saying here is the core issue, the root of sin is unbelief, specifically unbelief in Jesus, concerning sin because they do not Believe in me. And certainly this would match Jesus' consistent message all throughout the gospel. What does he say to people who are trapped in sin, that are caught in sin? Does he say, I condemn you for your sin? Does he even say, oh, your problem is your behavior, your problem is your lifestyle? No, no, no. He says, your problem is unbelief. Unbelief. He's calling people to faith. He's calling people to belief in him. Unbelief is the root of all sin. Now, to the world, this sounds ridiculous. You know, the world hears Jesus saying, the root of all sin is unbelief in me. And they think, how arrogant. How crazy. How could Jesus claim that? Well, it only makes sense the more you understand the biblical concept of sin what sin is and what the root cause of sin. And, and this is all throughout the scripture. I, I want to take you backward in the Old Testament for a few minutes. And, and I, I know we're, we're really hanging out on this issue of sin because it's that, it's that important. And then and the other two words, righteousness and judgment, actually will flow out of this one. But let's go back in time. 587 B.C., Okay, 600 years before Jesus came. 587 B.C., Babylonian army conquered Jerusalem, exiled the chosen people of God out of the promised land they were dwelling in. Like, just plucked them out. 
and Jerusalem was desecrated, and Jerusalem was burned, and Jerusalem was desolate. And in the ashes of Jerusalem, God sends a prophet, Jeremiah, to explain how all this happened, to explain what went wrong in the covenant from from the side of the people of God that, that led to them losing the land. And this is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's God's explanation in the big picture for what happened to the nation of Israel. Here's what's so interesting. He says they've committed two sins. How many sins had they committed? Thousands, millions of sins. But, but what God is saying through Jeremiah is you can, you can boil all those sins down to two things. And if you really think about it, the two things are really two sides of one thing. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. And they're broken cisterns. <laughs> Y'all, cistern water is the, the worst water to drink in, in this uh, culture. I mean, you want living water. Living water comes from the spring. Living water is fresh. It bubbles out. It's flowing. You know, it stays pure. Cistern, cisterns are just a hole in the ground. They're not even a well. They don't, they don't go into the, the, the water underneath the earth. They, they're just like a, a, a hollow hole and the, the rainwater comes down the hill and it collects in the cistern and guess what else is in the cistern, you know? You know, dead animals and feces and all kinds of other things that, that get carried down the hill with the water. And, and Jesus is saying, they had living water and they turned their back on it to quench their thirst in places that, that have no life for them, only death. For them. You see, this is Jesus' description of sin. I mean, this is God, sorry, this is God's description of sin. We'll get to Jesus in a minute. God's description of sin through the prophet of Jeremiah. Fast forward 600 years in history. God himself comes to the earth in the person of Jesus. And I, I want us to look at John 7, 37. We covered this earlier in our John series. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried. Listen to this. If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God has taken the the living water that that the Hebrew people set aside, that they've rejected, and, and he's bringing it to the people. And Jesus with open arms is how I imagine him shouting this out. He says, if anyone Anyone, and we come to find out through the progressive revelation of the rest of the New Testament. When he says anyone, he means anyone. It's not just for the Hebrews. If anyone is thirsty, come to me. So what was true for the Hebrew people is true for every human being. In Christ, God has provided himself as our life source. Himself as living water. Our sin, the root of our sin anyway, the core of our sin, is that we don't really believe he's what we need. We don't really believe he's all we need. And so we dig for ourselves these own water sources. We, why do we sin? You know, because we're thirsty. Why do we lie? Why do we lust? Why do we steal? Why do we hurt people in various ways? It's because in those moments of thirst, 
we believe something other than Christ promises more life for us. And so we go there. We take our thirst there. Every sin, I, I just think this is just true, every sin committed is an attempt by a thirsty person to quench their thirst in a water source other than fellowship with God, other than connection to God. In those moments, we're not believing in Christ. Our failure, our root sin is unbelief. It's really true. We're not really believing in Christ, not, not in the nitty gritty of life. This is something we can relate to the world in, do you see? And so this will help us as the Spirit through us convicts the world concerning sin. Last week, I was helping one of our daughters get ready for school. You know, Jody and I have this intricate system worked out. I'm sure most of y'all in the room do that have uh, children. And, you know, I, I was helping. I've got certain things that I usually do to help my daughter get out the door on time because that's always not easy, right? And uh, a few days ago, you know, um, she, let's just say she was being very demanding and ungrateful. And let's just say that that was really kind of getting on my nerves, you know, <laughs> underneath. And, but rather than correcting her genuinely, truthfully, uh, gently, I exploded. <laughs> a little explosion came out of my mouth. Okay, nobody can relate to this, I'm sure. And, <laughs> and, and here's the thing. Like at the time, like, it didn't really seem that big a deal. But, but, but y'all, I want to be honest about this. Quite frankly, my words were intended to poke her. They were intended to put her in her place because she was in the wrong, you see. In that moment, what water source was I drinking from? In that moment of explosion, of just biting her head off, what water source was I drinking from? Well, maybe pride. You know, my ego demanded that I not be taken for granted. Uh, maybe power. I was feeling small. I was feeling controlled. And I wanted to reassert my power, reassert my control. You see, in that moment, I made a decision. I, I need to go over here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm going to exert myself rather than depending on Christ to, to be able to speak words of life through me to a, a, a daughter who's struggling. You see, now this is not easy, is it? Jesus offers himself to us as a life source. And this is what we've been hearing all throughout John's gospel. Remember what he says in, in chapter six. I am the bread of life. In John chapter seven, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. You see, so what the world needs to hear about sin is the same thing you and I need to keep hearing about sin. And that is this. Every misguided attempt to find life and fullness and satisfaction apart from God's provision in the person of Jesus Christ is missing the mark and will leave us thirsty. So the world needs to be convicted. It needs to be corrected. It needs to be shown life-giving things. And the life-giving things is, is this. Your restless life is an evidence of a great thirst. Your sin is eating you alive and you can't even hear it because you're deceived. The broken cisterns you're drinking from are only making you more and more thirsty. The real satisfaction will come in trusting the true life source, the living water that is offered to you in Christ. 
This is what the world needs to hear about sin. Now, I've used most of my time on that, but the other two come out of it. They flow out of it. So, so let's, let's go back. Let's go to this next one. So concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Well, that's hard to understand. What does that have to do with righteousness? Well, tra track with me logically on this. If the core sin is unbelief in Jesus, then righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. And when Jesus says, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer, he's talking about where he's about to go. He's talking about what he's about to do. He's talking about his death his resurrection, and his ascension. He's talking about Easter weekend and what follows. He's talking about the good news, the gospel. The good news is this. Through simple faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his righteousness is placed on you. The events that Jesus is alluding to when he says, because I go to the Father, you'll see me no longer, are exactly what, it makes, what, what makes it possible for anyone to be righteous. Now, how does the world think about righteousness in our day and time? Well, sim similarly to sin, the world believes righteousness is a social construct. That basically everyone is righteous in their own way. <laughs> everyone has, has the right to, to, to be who they are, fully okay, and expects the world to be fully okay with them. Everyone is righteous, you see, in their own way. Don't judge people, whether they're righteous or, or not righteous. The traditional Christian approach has sort of been to be like, no, you're not righteous, but we are. You see, it's a, a little bit of the traditional Christian approach. That's not gospel. That, that's sometimes how the church has approached it. The gospel turns the world's ideas about righteousness upside down. Listen to this. The gospel says, no one is righteous. In other words, no one is rightly related to God. That's what righteousness means. And no one's rightly related to themselves fully. No one's rightly related to other people fully. All, all this is, is carried up in the biblical concept of righteousness. No one is righteous except one. And that one has gone to the Father. And you cannot see him right now. Why? Because he is in the presence of the Father pleading on your behalf. The righteousness of Christ is placed on you through faith. That's how that works. That's how the trade works. You want to talk about righteousness? There's only one who is righteous. It's not me. It's not you. But it can be us. It can be you through faith in Christ. The righteousness of Christ. It's about grace. It's about what Jesus has earned for you. It's not something that everyone is inherently born with. It's placed on you through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus went to the Father, he is right there now making a case that even though you're unrighteousness, his righteousness is on you because of your faith. So he's right now standing before the Father and, and he's saying to the Father, that one is righteous, that one is righteous, that one is righteous because his faith is in me, her faith is in me. What the world needs to hear about righteousness is that it can't be earned. The world needs to hear about righteousness is, is, is it, it can't decide what righteous, who's righteous, who's not righteous, and we're all righteous. 
Righteousness must be received. Right relationship with God must be received by faith in the righteous one. One more. Talked about sin. We talked about righteousness. One more. Judgment. Concerning judgment. What does Jesus have to say about this one? Because the ruler of this world is judged. I love this one. Have you noticed how obsessed our world has gotten in judging people? Like, the world is obsessed with judging one another. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's standing on the right side of history? Who's standing on the wrong side of history? Who's on the inside? Who's on the outside? Who should be listened to? Who should be ignored? Who should be affirmed? Who should be canceled? When Jesus says these words concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, what's on his mind? Like, what is he anticipating? When Jesus said these words, he was about to take on the judgment of the world himself. He was about to walk directly into the teeth of judgment. You know, the night before, or sorry, the night coming, he, he's going to pray to the Father. If there's any way that this cup of your wrath, of your judgment, can, cannot be drank by me, let it be, but not your will, my will. I will drink the cup of judgment. This is what's on Jesus's mind. He will walk into the teeth of judgment. Why? So that the father of lies would finally be defeated. So that the ruler of this world would end up being judged. You see, the great deception of the father of lies is that God cannot be trusted. The death of Jesus on behalf of the world shattered that delusion. The deception of the enemy is God's holding out on you. The life of Jesus laid down for you shatters that delusion. Jesus is saying here, and he's talking about it in, in present tense, even though it's yet to come. Technically, he hasn't yet gone to the cross, but he's so sure of it. He's so set on it. He's saying victory is secured. The writing is on the wall. The deceiver has been defeated. Darkness could not overcome the light. And that's a piece of information the father of lies does not want the world to know. About judgment... The world needs to know who wins in the end. Who is vindicated? Jesus Christ. And who is judged? The father of lies, the deceiver, the enemy. The world needs to know who wins in the end. The deceiver has been judged. The deceiver has been defeated. And here's what that means for them. That means judgment is now in the hands of Christ. That the father bestowed on Jesus all things and put all things at his feet. So judgment is now in the hands of Christ and there will be no judgment for anyone who is in Christ. There will be no judgment for anyone who is in Christ. Anyone who believes in Jesus. Anyone who turns and repents to a new way and says, I've realized now I've been deceived and I want the light. I want to walk in the light. I believe. 
I receive the righteousness of Christ on me. Therefore, there's no longer any condemnation on me. There's no longer any judgment. The judgment's on the ruler of the world and all those who remain with him in deception. But there will be no judgment for anyone who is in Christ. Let's wrap up with the rest of our text this morning. See, I've only covered half. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to use this as the ending because I think this text gives us hope for how to live in our time and place. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In a world that is still for the time being deceived, you and I as followers of Jesus have exactly what we need the spirit of truth. Throughout the upper room discourse, Jesus gives various titles and names and descriptions to the spirit. He is the comforter. He is the helper. This time he calls him the spirit of truth. And then he goes on. He says something amazing. He says, even though I'm not with you, I'm going to keep speaking to you. I'm going to keep teaching you. And it won't just be a reminder of things I've already said, although that's part of the Spirit's role we've already heard about previously. I will also teach you new things, Jesus is saying, and I'm going to do that through my Spirit. Here's what's amazing. The words Jesus spoke to those apostles were written down and are recorded in our New Testament. The, the things that needed to be fleshed out in real life. How does the gospel work? You know, what does a church look like? How do we engage in the world? These things were taught by Jesus' spirit to the disciples. The disciples taught them and wrote them down. And we have the words of the spirit today. And even more than that, the spirit of truth, the same spirit dwells in us. And every time we come to God's word and we teach God's word and we listen to God's word and we read God's word, the author of the text is re-speaking the word to us. The spirit of truth is continuing to teach us the words of Jesus because this is the living word of God for us today. Before we sing our final song, I just want to invite you into a time of prayer we do this each week at fellowship. We pause just to give time and space and quiet to pray, to talk to God, to reflect. It's not easy to find that time in our world. And we want to create a sacred moment, a sacred space for you to pray. Feel free to take whatever posture you would like. You can stay seated. You can kneel. If you'd like to stand, you can feel free to do any of those things. And I want to encourage you this morning to take to heart one of the verses I just read, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. What do you need to hear this morning? What truth needs to be affirmed to you? What do you need to be taught this morning? Maybe where do you need to be convicted by the spirit this morning? Perhaps just give him the time and space to speak to you as we pray. Let's do that now.
If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't know if I can fit in with these things. I don't know if I'm there. I just want to encourage you, just keep coming. Just, just allow God's word to keep speaking to you if you're willing. I, I know that we as a congregation, we want this to be a safe place for people who would say, I don't know that I'm fully there yet. And the reality is none of us are fully there yet. But what we would like to say is we genuinely believe Jesus is life. And there's no full life. There's no real life. There's no truest life apart from him. And if you sort of sense maybe there's something to that, would, would you come and have a conversation with us and just be a part of what God is doing here in our midst? I want to encourage all of us, if you've got a prayer request of any kind, we need to walk with each other. We need to pray for each other. Come down front, share it with someone that will be here. You can also submit it onto the website. We'll pray for you. Our elders will pray for all the requests that are that are given through the body. And I want to encourage you as you go, you know, we have this spirit, this missional spirit in us and the task he's given us is far too great for us. Let the spirit do it in you. The more you drink from the living water of Christ, the more his life will just flow out of you. And keep that in mind as we go this morning and let's enjoy this beautiful fall day in the name of Christ. Amen. Have a good week.